baptism and communion. You know, culturally, we kind of know what baptism is when we are not part of a church because we see it in movies or we've heard it from tradition. We don't know what baptism is. Communion? That sounds very uh, spiritual. But it's intimidating as, a, as an unbeliever. And then as you become a believer, you still you have these mysterious things going on around you. You know, like baptism and communion. You don't understand. And uh, I remember thinking that it just seemed like some of these things like baptism, they just seem like religious acts that people do to somehow appease God. Or communion is something we do just so God will accept us or something. That's how I felt when I came into the church. Well, you know that's not the case, right? Baptism and communion, things in the church are meant for another purpose, much greater than, in fact, obviously opposite of a person trying to basically be good enough for God by doing things. And today we get a chance to look at those two things, communion and uh, baptism. And we're going to do it from a little different context because I don't think we can really understand why God has baptism and communion as things the church is to do without really understanding the Great Commission, what the church is to be about anyways. And so with that, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Um, starting in verse 16, instead of what you'd normally expect in verse 18, because that's where the Great Commission is, but you'll see why in a little bit. Let's uh, read this here. Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Familiar words, right? They were some of the final words that Jesus said as he physically walked on this earth. These words are like a handoff of the mission that Jesus achieved to those 11 people at that time. And now, those same words he uses to hand off to us his mission to the church. So, why is it called a great commission? What's the difference between a mission and a commission? Well, we all know that Jesus was on a mission. Uh, still is. His mission is to reconcile the people he created to their creator. We all know that Jesus being God was the only one who could carry out this plan to conquer sin and he keeps us so that we can fellowship with the Father. He conquered death and provided us an opportunity to share with him an abundant life here on earth and forever in heaven. That's Jesus' mission. The word mission has the idea of sending to it. When you look at the original word, the idea of a mission has the idea that someone sent someone else to achieve a mission. A task on earth was achieved by Jesus, and he's still on that mission of reconciliation. But now, that mission is really in the works in the church. 
In this early meeting of the body of Christ, as seen in these 11 men, Jesus shares his mission with the church, and that's what a commission is, is when somebody shares the mission with somebody else. You're now joined together in the same mission. You have been commissioned. Someone has the authority to send and make it happen. Before Jesus instructs them about his mission, he says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The work of redeeming the world, the mission that Jesus as creator had put in place long ago belongs to him. He has the authority to lead and to direct his people. He is the master. Paul would later describe Jesus like this in Ephesians 1.22. He says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Then he says again in Colossians, he's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So Jesus starts off by reminding us that he is the head of the church. He has full authority to commission people. He has full authority to carry out his mission. And he now is handing it off to these 11 disciples and to the church. One of the greatest prayers in the Bible can be seen in John chapter 17. It's a passage that just demonstrates this tender and loving kindness of Jesus to his people. And uh, he's there in the upper room at the tail end of his personal teaching with these guys, and he basically prays for them. Look at the beautiful compassion of God's authority over his people as he prays. Kind of catch when we read this in John chapter 17, this handoff that's being made, this commission that's being made by Jesus. I'm going to read from verse 6 of John chapter 17, and I think it's all the way through the end of the chapter. It's a long passage, but when you listen to it, just listen as if you're hearing it for the first time. Jesus praying for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for those, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world anymore, any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by their truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, for they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me 
through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in you so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as I have loved you. Father, I want those you have given me to be with you where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. Do you kind of catch the mission that Jesus is on? Do you see what his mission is to love people back to the Father? To love them, and he uses the words of the Father. He uses the words in order to teach people who God is. And then he looks at his people and he says, I want them to do the same thing. I want them to know you the same way. I want them to love the world the way that I love the world. I want them to know the true God and make him known. Do you see his authority? Only Jesus has the right to do this, to transfer this mission. The centerpiece of the body of Christ is unity. It's loving one another so much that we can focus on the truth of who God is and we can communicate that truth in a way that can be understood by the world. That's what a commission is, a co-mission, a shared mission by people committed to the same purposes. Jesus prays for his people that they'd be sanctified. That's a churchy word I didn't understand when I was a new believer. But it means kept separate for holy purposes. Hear it again. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. God has separated the church, you in the church, for the mission of communicating to the world God's plans for them, God's love for them. How do we continue that mission of reconciling with God? By separating ourselves from the gravity that this world has in sin. Separating ourselves and staying focused together to communicate God's word and as who he is to people. But wait a minute. Remember who Jesus is talking to? I started this passage in verse 16. Who is Jesus sharing this mission with? Eleven disciples? Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Eleven men are here eager to be with Jesus. He told them to meet him there, and they show up. They obey. That's the way it is today. We show up. We gather together to worship Jesus, to see Jesus, because he tells us to and because we love him. Now they worship him the same way we can worship him, as a risen Savior. But wait, what else happens? They worship him, and then what? But some doubted. The 11 apostles after all of this time living with Jesus, 
seeing Jesus right there before their eyes, struggle with understanding everything that God is doing. They doubted. So, if you look at what Jesus responded to, he responds to these people worshiping, but he knows they doubt. He knows they struggle. So what would you do in response? If you're Jesus, Jesus basically looks at them and he comes to them. This is what I love about God. When we doubt, he comes. He comes and he teaches us. And he tells us what he wants. So Jesus comes to them. And what does he say? Remember in that John 17, he prayed for their protection? What he's going to say next is for the protection of these doubting apostles, these doubting disciples, these people who love him. He's going to protect them by giving them something to do. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. First he tells them he has full authority, every authority, and they know this. So they look at him when he starts saying, I have all authority in heaven and earth. These doubting disciples look at him, and if they didn't know him, what do you think they would have expected? Get away from me, you doubting idiots. No. He loves them. And he says, I have all authority in heaven and earth, so therefore, go to all nations and make disciples. Remember Peter's confession of faith that we looked at last week? How... He was described as the rock upon which the church would be built. The mission of the church is to make disciples. People who, regardless of their race, creed, color, language, any other factor, any nation, every nation, when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God who saves, He accepts us. When we as a church go and make disciples, we're using the keys to the kingdom. We're opening a door that couldn't be opened before for people. Sharing the good news of Jesus with them. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against that mission. The church has been commissioned to do the work that God wants us to do, to make disciples. Even these doubting apostles, even you and me. So what is a disciple anyway? The word disciple, uh, when you look at it, or if you looked at the Greeks at that time, a disciple was someone who learns from an expert, learns from a master. It's more than just a student who attends school. It's much more. It's somebody who will only become proficient because he lives with the master. He observes everything the master does. He hangs on every word. He personally apprentices. He invests his life into this master's work. These apostles are the quintessential example of what a disciple is. See, a disciple doesn't start out as an expert. Disciple doesn't start out as a master. He starts out doubting. He starts out without proficiency. He starts out with a brain full of mush. He doesn't know much. He starts out just like you and me, as far as us knowing our master. A disciple starts out with just a seed of faith, and I can almost imagine these guys when they recognized their lack of faith. They remember Jesus saying something when, they, when he told them they lacked faith. He said this, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Do you have a seed of faith? Yeah. That's why you show up. That's why you learn from the Master. That's why you're a disciple. doesn't mean you don't have doubts. It doesn't mean that you are there yet. 
The point is we become disciples by sharing in Jesus' mission. By unifying with Jesus and other disciples and commissioning together, our doubts become faith and our faith gives us purpose. The shared mission gives us life and a passion. But only when we share in the mission with Jesus and one another. That's called the church. It's not religion. It's life in Jesus. Discipleship doesn't come, uh, isn't just coming to faith in Jesus. It's following Jesus. It's hearing Jesus. It's remembering that Jesus came so we would know the Father. It's experiencing the reality that Jesus abides with us. He lives with us. And that he ascended to heaven so that we would know God through the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts. That takes time. It takes time together, living together as members of the body of Christ. That's why verse 20, what it's all about is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Think about that for a minute. These doubting apostles would grow in their faith by telling others what they learned from Jesus when they walked with him. Do you want to grow in faith? Tell others what you know about Jesus. Tell others his words. Teach them to observe all that Jesus said, everything he commanded. You can see that in action in the first chapters of Acts. They got it, despite the moment of doubt that they had with Jesus at that moment. Look what they do in Acts chapter 2. They made disciples. They went. They taught. They taught together. They weren't alone. They were always part of the family of God as the church. And we continue that to today by being commissioned to make Uh, to go and make disciples by going and sharing, by teaching one another the words and commands of Jesus. Which commands? All of them. Does that sound ominous? Does that sound religious, to teach the commands of God? Religion is our attempt to obey every command in our own power. That's religion. At least not, that's the religion that I experienced when I was young. That's the religion of the world. But the church is not a place of man's religious efforts. Instead, it's the work of a disciple participating in God's work. That's what it means to obey. John chapter 6, verse 28 through 29 says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him in whom you've sent. You want to do the work of God? Know him. Believe in him. Let him do what he does and walk with him and be commissioned to do his work with him. That's why twice in the book of Matthew, Jesus told us that God's greatest commands, what they truly are. He says it twice. Once in Matthew 12 and again in Matthew 22, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Obeying Jesus' command in the context of loving God and loving people. That's what discipling is. The mission of a disciple is to go to make disciples, teach them the words, help them to observe. It's not just to get them saved, but to share in the mission that they now share in the mission with you, with Jesus. Unity, bound together in a common mission. Notice the progression of how someone is discipled. Uh, It says, Go therefore and make disciples all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Well, there it is. Right in the middle of the Great Commission is the ordinance of baptism. 
packed right there. Jesus tells his apostles to go and baptize. What is baptism? The word's actually a Greek transliteration. It means to dip or immerse. It was used when a person would take a piece of cloth and he would dip it in to dye. We know about John the Baptist because what was he doing? He was baptizing. He was dipping people into water to symbolize repentance. A person looking away from sin and looking toward forgiveness. John the Baptist said this, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Baptism is used by God to demonstrate something greater than simply the repentance of sins. In fact, Jesus was baptized. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So before Jesus was baptized, he was a dutiful son. Before he was baptized, he worked as a worker, probably as a carpenter. He lived his early life before this baptism, just doing what he did as a son and as a, and a young adult. And he lived a perfect life. It was necessary that he did that. But then he was baptized. His entire focus changed from being a dutiful son to being a good carpenter to being a, a righteous person. It changed into doing the mission of God, doing the work of God, redeeming, pursuing, discipling. When Jesus baptized, God demonstrated his pleasure with him because he was publicly aligning himself with the ministry of reconciliation. Now everyone would see. But the other thing that happened is after he was baptized, he became the baptizer. So Jesus is baptized. He turns from his early years as a son and he turns toward the mission. And starts baptizing. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. There's one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Baptism takes individuals and joins them to God. What I'm talking about is the baptism of Jesus Christ. One baptism. He plants that seed of faith in a person, and despite doubts, despite a lack of faith at times, he joins them to the Father, and he joins them to one another. Galatians says, For in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as, as many as you... Let me read this again. For as many of you as, are, as were baptized into Christ have, been, have put on Christ... Christ is the one who baptizes us into himself and into his kingdom. When we put on Christ together, we join him in this mission. 
as part of that mission, he tells us to do what? To go baptize. Well, we can't do what Christ does. That baptism is once for all by Jesus. So what is the purpose of our baptism when we go into the world and baptize disciples? Similar to what Jesus did. When Jesus was baptized, he turned from one direction and he fully pursued and committed himself to the work of the ministry, the work of God. And now we, as commissioned people, as part of the church, get to do the same for others. We get to baptize and hear a confession of faith and hear somebody say publicly that I turn from what I was doing and I turn for, for the mission that God has in store for me, to, to make disciples, to teach, to learn, to know God. In other words, they become baptizees, or they were baptizees, and now they become baptizers, just like Jesus. They were a, a disciple before we make this baptism by water, but now they're stating publicly that they are commissioned by God to be part of the church, to join as a member of the body of Christ, and to pursue the mission that God has given the church to do. Just like Jesus. After pouring out the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 of Acts, we see that those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. When a person publicly is baptized, they are making a statement to the church and to members of their family, to the society, to everyone, that they are now adding, being added to the church. They are now part of of the bigger picture. They're no longer pursuing God just because of their own righteousness. They're pursuing God and His righteousness to disciple others. Baptism adds people to the church, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. Why do we baptize in the middle of the Great Commission? To join professing people, to join into the church, and to join into the mission of Christ, to learn from one another, to hear his words, to obey everything he commands together. 2 Corinthians tells us baptism is a picture for moving from death to life. Paul tells us there that God makes us alive together with Christ. That's the purpose of baptism, that we're alive together. Romans 6, chapter 3 through 5 describes baptism as sharing in Christ's death and uniting with him in the resurrection. See that prayer of unity that Jesus prayed? Baptism is a way, a tool for somebody to make that statement publicly so that we can join together as a church. It's a public confession that you share in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that you share it together as a member of the body of Christ. You're moving from your mission to share in Christ's mission together as a member of the body of Christ. Logan heard another pastor put it this way. He said, baptism is a statement that the, that the one is part of the many. That's why baptism is part of the Great Commission. It moves a person from being one to being part of the, a member of the body of Christ, one of many. 
But that's not the end of the Great Commission. Let's take another look at what Jesus, um, what Jesus wants his disciples to be about. Verse 20 of uh, the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, let's see. I'm missing a page. Oh, there it is. That was a scary thought. So there's two ideas here. You have observe, or maybe it says in your Bible, obey. Observe everything that I I commanded, or obey everything I commanded. Then there's another one that has to do with our eyes. Behold, lo, might be in your Bible, or remember might be in your Bible. Jesus wants us to do some things even after we are baptized into the church, even after we have joined into the commission, joined into the mission of the church, where we join together in unity, he also recognizes that our doubts, just like those disciples, they're going to pop up now and again. You're going to sin. You're going to fail at times. You as an individual and even you as a church. So he tells us to do something that's very important. Observe. Continue to observe. Continue to look and behold him. We do that uh, as a church. Um, We do that through communion. You know, it's almost like you got to go back to the basics. And communion is one of those things that teaches us to go back to what really matters, teaches us about the basics. And you remember that prayer in John 17? He says, Holy Father, Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may, they, be, they may be one as we are one. Communion is that touchstone. It's that remembering that keeps us from adding on to the gospel. And by that I mean one of the biggest problems in a church, as all the way from the original first generation church to today, is we have a tendency to add on to the gospel, to make it make more requirements for people to be acceptable to God, or to misunderstand and go off a different direction, a tangent. We, we lose the focus of what God's mission is to reconcile people into his kingdom. We lose that focus, and we, we need a touchstone to remind us what really is important. We have to check our agenda at the door, and we have to basically realize when we look at Jesus, who's the master? <laughs> look at the first communion celebrated by Jesus himself with the disciples in Luke chapter 22. Verses 14 to 20, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he gave thanks, when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which I have give, is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. Mark chapter 14, verse 24 to 25 adds this. This is Jesus speaking. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
Remember that the Passover at that time was something they remembered year after year. It was that picture of the night in Egypt where the firstborn of every family would die, except those that had blood over the doorpost, and that was the Passover. They were passed over from death. The Jews celebrated this Passover feast and included unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and wine, and each element had a purpose to remind the people of God's redeeming them from slavery to the Egyptians. Jesus uses this Passover meal to make an even greater statement about God's plan of redemption for all who believe in the work in the name of the Messiah. He wanted you and me to remember something, to behold him every time we would gather together and have the Lord's Supper. I'm sure the apostles were probably remembering the earlier teaching about the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ. This is a hard teaching. Chapter, uh, John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will, praise, I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so that the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now you know why sometimes coming into church is a little bit intimidating when you hear this type of teaching. In fact, even many of the people that were following Christ heard this and left. Jesus is making a point. When we celebrate communion together, it's because we remain in Jesus and are reminded that he remains in us. We're joined in life together. We cannot survive as a believer in Jesus Christ without remembering what Christ has done, without remembering his mission and his sacrifice. So now, in the Great Commission, we're told to observe or obey everything Jesus commanded. Well, this is one of the things he commanded. Remember, whenever you... Come together to break the bread. Remember what I've done. At the Last Supper, Jesus commands the apostles is to remember. The Passover feast would change for Christians. It would change forever. And now we obey Jesus by breaking the bread together as a church, and we will continue to obey this command to remember to the end of the age. It says, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age, until that day when we drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now look at how Paul describes communion, the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians chapter 23, verses 20, uh, or 1 Corinthians, I don't have the chapter, just verses 23 to 26, you'll have to look it up. For I received from the Lord what is also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Back to basics. No adding on to the gospel. No adding on to the church. The church is a place of life. The church is a place of mission. The church is a place of listening and teaching and understanding who God is. Don't add on. Go back to the basics. One of the reasons the believer's unity um, routinely breaks 
is because we do not remember the mission. We don't remember what Jesus was really about. He prayed for our unity so that we would be brought to complete unity. What keeps us from that? Adding on. Communion is meant to be celebrated together as a gathering, as the church. It's not meant to be an individual act of piety. It's not meant to be just you. I have trouble with this because usually when I'm sitting out there, I keep thinking about all the things that might make me unworthy of accepting communion. Well, guess what? That's a part of it too, but not for the purpose you think. When you look at 1 Corinthians, um, let's see here, 11. Yeah, I was going to go to chapter 10 first, but I think I'll pass that. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 23 through 31. For I received from the Lord what is also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, did I just read that? Okay, I've got to keep going then. Verse, uh, um, verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Part of the reason we remember the work of Christ is because when we do that, we know who we are. We know who He is, and we know who we are. Who are we? We're sinners saved by grace. And when we were joined to the church, when we become part of the body of Christ, your sins and my sins affect one another. They cause problems. When you look at 1 Corinthians, you see all of the problems that people's sin caused the rest of the body. See, communion isn't just about you introspectively looking at your own sins. It's looking at how you are causing others to stumble, how you are standing in the way of the making of disciples. Are you so focused on yourself that you've forgotten that you turned? No. You turn and you are committed to the mission of Christ, making disciples, going to all nations, teaching and understanding, knowing who God is. Sin is something that has to get out of the way, not just for you, but for the body. Consider the body. I think that talks about how people become weak because of their sin. Weak. If you're weak, you're not going to basically be able to make disciples. And more importantly, maybe your sin is causing somebody else to become weak. Maybe they can't go out and make disciples. When we celebrate communion, we remember that Jesus provided us a new covenant, a new promise. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I just realized why I got my messed up. I have this in here twice. <laughs> so what stands in the way of unity in Christ? It's personal and corporate sin. Instead of communion being you alone, we must see it as the church communing. We come together to remember Christ together. We remember his mission, and we remember that it's only by his blood, only by his body, that we can live. Our life is no longer in ourselves. It's in Christ. It's in one another's life, in the church. Therefore, in communion, we consider the body of Christ. So let's summarize. 
God sent his son into the world to seek and save that which was lost, to redeem his people by conquering sin and death, to make us holy and righteous sons and daughters. When Jesus met with his disciples, he commissioned us to go and make disciples. You baptizees become baptizers. You go and make disciples partially by hearing one another's confession of trust, discerning, and then accepting that person into the church to join into the mission that we share, which is life together. We become learners and we become teachers. We repeat Christ's words and His commandments so that we'll know Him. That is what worship is really all about. Ultimately, we get to know God together. The church is the body of Christ meant to be joined together and unified in, our, in, in faith. And we remember the work of Christ as we break bread together, setting aside our sins that divide us and refocusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these religious acts that I thought were so unusual and strange, they're beautiful. They're, they're meant for life. They're meant for us to join together and unify. They're meant for us to hear our confessions to one another and to love one another and to pursue and remember the work of Christ. That's what the church is all about. Let's pray. Father, give, our, give us hearts to join into your mission. Help us to realize, Lord, that even when we doubt, even when we are uh, falling away from you, even when we're sinning, that you continue to call us to join in your mission. You, you want us to recognize that you didn't die for our sins alone, but for all of us, for the people in this church and the people outside of this church. May we see the world through your eyes. May we love one another so the world would see you. May we pray for one another the way you prayed for us. May we recognize that your commands are good. They provide freedom and purpose. Thank you for loving us from before the foundation of the world, for sending your Son on a mission to redeem us and to show us your glory. May we go and display that glory together as your body. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.